Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Digitized live from at Computer Studio in Cape Coral, Florida. Hey everybody, it's Don Abernathy, your host of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite new World War II-based podcast. You know, at some point I'm thinking perhaps I should change that intro to your favorite World War II reenactment podcast, because let's be honest, that's kind of where this podcast has gone. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm going to continue to focus on uh, providing you with World War II details and stories, much like the uh, monologue coming up here in momentarily. But uh, before we kick that off, I just want to say happy anniversary to everybody. This is the official anniversary. The start of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast was a year ago this month. And uh, the little show that couldn't finally did, and we are still trucking along. Now, I know the shows aren't as consistent as they once were, but I discovered that I need to put more effort into the show, and I don't want to put out shows simply for the fact to put out a show. Now, I do do that on the Waterman and D-Train show, another podcast that I do, but the content of that show is not as important and is not as valuable as the content of this show, and I didn't want to lose listeners or water down the subject matter of this show by simply rushing to put something out for the sake of putting something out. And so I just want to thank all y'all who hang out with us, who subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher. We are also on iHeartRadio now, as well as Google Music. And I have been preparing all weekend long. This Friday, I'm heading up to uh, Lakeland, Georgia for the first ever World War II weekend in Lakeland, Georgia. Um, We've had people on talking about this event in the past. It started out as a USO show to raise money for the um, jazz club for a particular high school and has turned into something hopefully bigger and hopefully something that's going to continue to grow each year. Um, Once again, I'm excited because the Alabama event that we did for the 75th anniversary of the Tarawan Landings, that is the only event I have personally done outside of the state of Florida. And so now I get to add Georgia to my resume of locations for uh, World War II events. You know, one of the things I've been working on is I've been trying to find a way to defarb my camp for the weekend. Because as most of y'all know, when we do these events, our camp, our bivouac, becomes our home for the weekend. Pardon me, I'm uh, I'm imbibing, if you will, in some uh, Crown Royal Regal Apple. It's not a plug, it's just a damn good drink. Uh, forgive me for having the ice jingling around. But defarbing your camp, the things that we can do to make our bivouac look more error correct, look more authentic, more importantly to defarb it. Um, in the past I've talked about the whole what's in your tent. I personally don't bring pillows, I don't bring yoga mats, I don't bring air mattresses. I very rarely will sleep on a cot. More often than not I'm sleeping alone on the ground in a pup tent for multiple reasons. One, um, I have found the few times that I have slept in a large tent and on a cot, it, for some reason it always seems to be cold those nights. And as I've talked about in the past, um, when you're sleeping on a cot, you have that negative air traveling underneath you, and I find that you get colder. It's almost impossible to stay warm. Now, I know in a past episode, Mike Santana suggested, well, what you do is the wool blanket that you have on your cot, you keep it laying over. You don't fold it up. You have it laying over so that that blocks the wind, and that'll help keep you warm. But I personally have found sleeping on the ground in a small tent especially in the colder times, keeps you warmer Keeps you warmer because, one, you're sleeping on the ground. You have no negative space below you. But more importantly, you're sleeping in a smaller area. Uh, your body heat has the ability to help warm the 
small negative area inside the pup tent opposed to the large amount of negative area in a wall tent or in a GP tent. So I personally like to sleep in my pup tent. Um, I can have all my stuff in there. I can snore on my own. I don't have to listen to other people snore. Other people's tossing and turnings don't keep me awake. But as many of you know, a few months back, I decided to make a basically a wooden skin for my cooler because I have a modern day igloo cooler and it's ugly. And I've seen people, and a lot of people do this, and I, and I did it too, they would bring tarp, canvas tarps or what have you. They would build their bivouac, they would unload all their stuff, and then they would go hide their coolers, they would go hide the containers that their tents came in and what have you. Now, about a year and a half ago, I was lucky enough to find two 50 cal Navy canisters, ammo crates at the, at the local flea market, which work out great because both shelter half and both my poles and all my pegs, they fit into one of those cans. And then all four of my wool blankets, if I fold them up tight enough, fit into the other can, which works great for transport. And once I get there, I can set up my tent. I can put all my, you know, stuff inside, my wool blanket and all that. And when I'm done, I don't have to pack up, you know, trash bags. I don't have to pack up a, a huge gym bag or in some cases Rubbermaid. I have these ammo cans that air correct. Yes, they're naval cans, but one could argue if you do have a bivouac set up that possibly someone stole some naval cans or they got them from wherever. And so they can be around the bivouac and they're not out of place. And what I discovered at the Tarawa event, these cans make excellent benches. Um, they're great to sit on. I spent all weekend sitting on those. So they, they serve multiple purposes. One, they make the bivouac look cool. Two, um, once I unload my tent and set it up, once I take my blankets out of the other one, I then transfer all of my Farby foods into one of them, which because they have a nice rubber seal around the inside of them, I can put my loaf of bread in there, I can put my peanut butter in there, I can put all my personal, you know, my toiletries, my contact solution, all the Farby crap that I don't want laying around in my tent, and all the foods that I don't want people to see, now they are in weatherproof cans that also dub as a bench, and they work great. But one of the things I did to defarb my camp is the other thing people do is they'll cover up their modern day coolers with, as I said, burlap, canvases, whatever. But what I did is I built a skin so that it, I put it inside of a wooden crate that looks like, you know, any other shipping crate that supplies would have came in. And so there's a wood crate next to my naval cans. It all fits in, pop off the top, open up my cooler, have access to all my stuff. And what I found out in Alabama, because that's the first time I used it, even though it's an igloo cooler and not one of these high-end um, Arctic coolers or a high-end Yeti cooler where the ice stays all for a week, even though this is a low-end igloo cooler, that wood skin around it actually helps keep the heat of the sun off of it, and my ice does last longer inside of the cooler because it's not in direct sunlight. So not only is it defarbing my camp, but it serves as a nice insulator from the hot sun. The reason I bring this up is a couple years back, um, a friend of mine, John Thomas, had one he made, and I thought it was really cool. He got those Coleman propane burners, the camp burners. It's basically a propane tank with a, looks like a stove burner on top, and it has a little foot, and you can use that to cook out at your campsite. But let's be honest, when you put a cast iron skillet or what have you on top of it, they can give it a top heavy, and so, and they're Farby looking. So what he did is he created a wood crate 
that looks very similar to an ammo crate. Um, he built that around the burners, put a top on it, but the thing with these burners is you have to have access to the knobs to turn up the heat, to increase the flame. He put a nice hinge cover on the front so he can lower the front, have access to it, make his coffee, put a skillet on there, make some breakfast items, and it works great. I know what you're thinking, having wood burners in a wood box, you know, fire around wood, not the greatest idea, but look, he's had this thing for years. I've used it, I've seen him use it, it's never caught on fire, so I'm not too concerned because once again, the burners have a nice aluminum or metal tray underneath them, so there's no, you know, open flame near the wood. So I've decided to build one this weekend, and I got to, uh, Built it in my, my garage is kind of turning into a wood shop, which is nice. I, over Christmas, uh, Lowe's had their seven and a quarter inch sliding miter saw on sale for like 98 bucks. I picked one up and I took John's idea and I picked up two burners. Now I will give you this heads up. The first burner I picked up, I got off of Amazon. It was 30 bucks for the Coleman grade burner. And I was like, well, it's, it's a bit pricey, but I'll just make a single burner unit for now. I'll leave enough room in the box to add another burner later. So I got the burner, went down to Walmart to pick up the propane this weekend, and actually got a two propane pack for six bucks. And I noticed they had their Oregon Trail brand burner there for $16. I'm like, well, son of a gun. I thought the whole point of Amazon is to get items cheaper than what you get at the retail level. And here's a burner for half the price. So I went ahead and picked up another one, created a wood box. So I, I've kind of updated the design and I've put together a video I need to edit and I will uh, put that up on YouTube here in a week or two. Um, but I'm interested to hear what some of your all's ideas are for ways to defarb your camp. What are some of the things you do to camouflage modern day things such as coolers? Um, I know a lot of people put the Bluetooth speakers in old radio chassis. That way they have an authentic looking radio, but they can stream to it from their phone and have their Pandora playing with, you know, Andrew's sisters and all that stuff. But what's something that you're proud of, something that you've done to help defarb your camp? I'm interested in hearing some of your ideas. You can hit me up at uh, mail call at whatstillscuttlebutt.com. If it's easy to remember, info at d-410.com. You can hit us up on the Facebook. You can send me a tweet at Donovan410. Um, I'd be interested to uh, see your ideas to defarb your camp and some of the cool ones perhaps I'll read on the later episode. The following episode after this one, I will be recording live from Georgia. So hopefully if I run into some vets up there, I'll happily interview them if they're willing to sit down with me for some time. If not, we will do like we did. Similar at the Fort Morgan event where I'll do some interviews from within my truck or on site anyway. And hopefully we'll introduce you all to some more reenactors, some more historians. And help, you know, educate, get the word out preserve history and do what we love to do which is all things world war ii and all things world war ii history this week's product was actually invented accidentally by someone looking to manufacture clear gun sights dr harry cover then working for kodak discovered that the chemical mixture he had used had an incredibly strong bond so much so that once stuck together it was very difficult to separate Having abandoned the mixture as it wasn't what he needed for his current project, his failed compound only resurfaced on the civilian market in 1958 under the new name of Superglue, a full 16 years after its initial invention. 
You know, I want to thank the fine people at Act Computers for being the first sponsor on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. As you heard when I opened up the show today, I said digitized live from the Act Computer studio. That's right, Act Computers believes in what we're trying to do here at the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Act Computers has been servicing Southwest Florida since 2004. They specialize in veterinary clinics, medical clinics, and small businesses of all sizes. If you have server work need done, you need to expand your network, you need to work from home. If you're looking to have two-factor authentication to help secure your network for employees trying to remote in from home to help prevent your network from getting hacked, we can uh, help you with that too. Now I know what you're thinking, Don, we are not in Southwest Florida, I am out in Oregon. How is Act Computers going to help me? Act Computers has the ability to remote into your computer if needed. We can help service your computer remotely, clean you up, remove viruses, uh, fix your printers, configure email, basically any need you have, we can help you over the internet as long as you don't physically need us to unbox your printer or physically install a piece of hardware. If you're looking for online backup solutions, we can help you out there too. You're looking for a quality antivirus that doesn't pop up every time it doesn't find anything, we have a solution for that as well. So at Computer Servicing Southwest Florida since 2004 and helping people out all over the country since 2010. So give them a call at 239-283-1120 or check out act-capecoral.com or find us on Facebook. Dateline, January 21st, 1942. Roosevelt signs Daylight Time Act. Clocks are to be moved ahead one hour at 2 o'clock on the morning of February 9th. Large savings of power. Washington, D.C., January 20th. President Roosevelt signs the Daylight Saving Bill today and it becomes effective at 2 o'clock on the morning of February 9th for all interstate commerce and federal government activities. During congressional debate, it was assumed that this new time, by which clocks would be moved ahead one hour, would become general throughout the country. The measure would become inoperative six months after the war ends unless Congress votes to terminate it before then. Presidential Secretary Stephen Early said that the measure had the same objectives as the Daylight Saving Acts of the First World War, that is, great efficiency in our industrial war effort. The Federal Power Commission estimates that it would be saving 736,282,000 kilowatt hours of electricity annually. The real benefit of this change, the FPC said, would come from relieving present peak demands of power between dark and bedtime. The commission estimated that this change would provide relief to the extent of 741,160 kilowatts of productive capacity. Congressional action was necessary, Mr. Early pointed out so that there would be uniform system in all the states. President Roosevelt stated that the pen he used in the signing of the bill should be sent to one Robert Garland of Pittsburgh, who headed the National Committee that appeared at the hearings on the legislation and urged this enactment. Mr. Early said Mr. Garland also was active in advocating daylight savings time for the First World War, and he asked for no greater return than the pen used by President Woodrow Wilson in signing the act at that time. And now for some World War II vet news. Dateline, Monroe, Louisiana. The last surviving member of General Claire Chenault's Flying Tigers has passed away. Major Richard Sherman passed away in his Northeast Louisiana veterans home earlier today. Major Sherman trained as a bombardier and a navigator for B-25 bombers in the 11th Bomb Squadron. He spent 13 months in China and flew more than 50 missions. He was shot down only once on February 13, 1944 when the Japanese posed as a Chinese fishing boat. Major Sherman also received a Purple Heart for his wounds he received while taking enemy fire during the fight. Major Richard Sherman was 96 years old. Rest in peace, dear sir, and thank you for your service. 
Have you ever wondered why every Italian-style coffee house now sells something they call the Americano? For most people, that's just the name of the standard brew made in every coffee machine. But the origins of the Americano goes way back to the Second World War. When American GIs were stationed in Italy during World War II, they were better off than some of their companions as far as getting a decent cup of coffee went. While rationing and shortages hit most of Europe and the United States, these soldiers were lucky enough to be stationed in the most coffee-loving nation in Europe. Unfortunately for them, however, Italian-style coffee was not to their liking, as it tasted very different from the coffee they were used to back home. At that time, most Americans used the drip brewing method, in which hot water was poured over ground beans and left to drip through slowly. The result was a fairly smooth coffee to which they could add a little milk and make white coffee if they preferred. In Italy, the choice was mostly between cappuccino and espresso, and espresso consisted of one or two shots of a very strong black coffee to be drunk without adding milk. Although the Italians often added sugar to take away the bitterness, it would usually be down quickly in a few mouthfuls. The milder alternative was a cappuccino, much heavier drink than the standard white coffee the American soldiers were used to drinking back home. It was made by adding a frothy hot milk to a cup of strong espresso. The Italian baristas solved the problem with their visitors by offering a cup of hot water on the side to dilute the strong espresso. As it seemed to be a popular solution, it became a standard practice to put the espresso in a large cup and to add hot water on the top. Milk and sugar could be added as desired. This style of coffee was referred to as a Cafe Americano and then later shortened simply to the Americano as it is known today all over the world. Edward Carter Jr., born May 26, 1916 in Los Angeles, California, the son of missionary parents who went to the Far East to finally settle down in Shanghai, China. As a young teen, Edward ran away from his home to enlist in the military. However, it was not to be an ordinary journey as his material and spiritual paths intertwined and this was merely the beginning to a lifelong legendary military career. His first tour was short-lived, yet not too short to prevent this 15-year-old Carter from rising to the ranks of lieutenant in the Chinese army only to have his age discovered and promptly discharged and returned to his parents. However, it was too late and by this point in his short life, Carter believed he had been visited by a spirit in the Chinese army that had informed him he would be a great warrior who would not see his demise on the battlefield. Now having spiritual destiny, as soon as he was old enough, Edward enrolled in the Shanghai Military School where he received extensive combat training and learned at least four languages including Mandarin Chinese, Hindi, and German, as well as the proper skills for soldiering. Next, this destiny found him fighting in the Spanish Civil War as a corporal in an American volunteer unit opposing General Francisco's fascist troops. This American unit was known as the Socialist Abraham Lincoln Brigade. In 1938, this American unit was forced to flee into France, and it was this exodus that led to his return home to the United States, where he met and married his wife Mildred in Los Angeles of 1940. It wasn't long before his military destiny called his name once again. And on September 6, 1941, Carter enlisted in the United States Army shortly before World War II and quickly rose to the ranks of Staff Sergeant. But in 1942, just months after he enlisted, the Army opened a counterintelligence file with his name on it. On May 18, 1943, an unidentified intelligence officer at Fort Bennings, Georgia, deemed it advisable to put Sergeant Carter under surveillance and to start an investigation because Carter had been a member of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Allegedly, this file reported, while not necessarily a communist, he had been exposed to communism 
and that the subject was capable of having connections with subversive activities due to his early years spent training in the Orient and his speaking knowledge of Mandarin Chinese. Following this report, every Commander Carter had would secretly report what he read, where he went, and what clubs he joined. In 1944, Carter was shipped off to Europe and, as dictated by policies of the time, was assigned to performing supply duties. In December, when General Eisenhower ran short of combat arm replacements, he instituted the Volunteer Ground Force Replacement Command for rear echelon soldiers of all races. And by February of 1945, a total of 4,562 black soldiers were now serving in units up to a company size attached to previously all-white infantry and armored divisions, and by the height of his career, Carter had grown close to General George S. Patton, serving as one of the general's guards. Though he did not suffer cowardice, Patton had no room for prejudice in his ranks, and he and Carter had a strong bond with the fact that they both believed they had been visited by a spirit who foretold accomplishments on the battlefield, and after months of volunteering, Carter's platoon made it into combat. But Carter had to accept the demotion to private because the army policy of the times would not allow a black NCO to command white troops. Carter would eventually serve in the Mystery Division in Patton's 3rd Army. The Mystery Division, a division of black soldiers, performed missions requiring the use of uniforms without identifying unit insignias. And on March 23, 1945, Private Carter earned his Medal of Honor recommendation but received the nation's second highest award, the Distinguished Service Cross, instead due to his race. Carter was making his way to the Germantown Aspire when a Panzerfaust took out his tank. Carter and three other crew members jumped from their tank into an open field. Two of the crew members were killed in short order and one was seriously hurt, leaving only Carter to defend for himself. Despite being hit five times, Carter continued to run across the field until he located some cover. Eight Germans promptly rushed him. Carter shot six and took two of them prisoner. The Germans refused to fire on their own, and so Carter escorted his prisoners across the field until he reached his unit. The two German soldiers who acted as Carter's shields provided great intel that was passed up the chain of command. After quickly recovering from his wounds in less than a month, Carter was restored to the rank of staff sergeant and he finished the war training troops. By 1945, Carter had been awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the Bronze Star, a Purple Heart, and the American Defense Service Medal, Combat Infantry Badge, and numerous other citations and honors. Shortly thereafter, in 1946, Secretary of War Robert Patterson noted an irregularity in the lack of black recognition and promised to investigate. At the conclusion of the war, Carter found himself stationed in Fort Lewis, Washington, but when he attempted to re-enlist, the Army drummed him out of uniform without explanation. Carter received an honorable discharge dated October 1949, this being probably the darkest honor of his life. It is unclear when it became known that the Army had banished a decorated warrior as a suspected communist. However, it was very clear the Army had denied Carter a life of soldiering he dearly loved. Carter would transition into a life as a family man and steadily worked in a vehicle tire business for the rest of his life. And in 1962, although he smoked, he and his doctors attributed the discovery of lung cancer to shrapnel still in his neck. Carter died peacefully of lung cancer in the UCLA Medical Center of Los Angeles Hospital on January 30, 1963, at the age of 47. Sergeant Carter was laid to rest in the National Cemetery within the Veteran Hospital grounds in West Los Angeles, and in 1992, 
Secretary of Army John Shannon commissioned an independent study to identify unrecognized African-American heroes of World War II. In May of 1996, the study was concluded under the title The Exclusion of Black Soldiers from the Medal of Honor in World War II. Staff Sergeant Edward Allen Carter Jr. of Los Angeles, California was identified and recommended for the honors on January 10, 1997. Sergeant Carter was exhumed from the National Cemetery and honored the next day in Los Angeles. And on January 13th, President Clinton presented Carter's posthumous Medal of Honor to his son, Edward Allen Carter III, in Washington, D.C. And on January 14, 1997, with a horse-drawn caisson and full military honors, Edward Carter, the consummate soldier, was now finally at rest at Arlington National Cemetery. In 1998, Elaine Carter, his daughter-in-law, received 57 pages of declassified Army documents in response to the Freedom of Information Act request. These documents showed that the Army could not find a shred of disloyalty by Carter, and in an emotional ceremony in the Pentagon's Halls of Heroes, the day before Veterans Day of 1999, the Carter family again met with President Clinton. Assisting the Commander-in-Chief was General John Kane, Army Vice Chief of Staff. General Kane presented the Carter family with a set of corrected military records and belated posthumous award for Staff Sergeant Edward A. Carter, Jr., the Army Good Conduct Medal, the Army Occupational Medal, and the American Campaign Medal. General Kane presented the Carter family with a set of corrected military documents and belated posthumous awards for Staff Sergeant Edward A. Carter, Jr., the Army's Good Conduct Medal, Army of Occupation Medal, and the American Campaign Medal. General Kane and the President extended a full apology to the family and to the nation, thus ending the complete military destiny of Medal of Honor holder Staff Sergeant Edward Allen Carter, Jr. So today our friends over at J. Murray, Inc., better known as jmurrayinc1944.com. You may remember when we had the proprietary of J. Murray, Inc. back on this podcast, I think the fourth or fifth episode, because, because I have become inadvertently a M1 helmet collector, and much like a lot of you, I wanted to see if I could decipher the age of an M1 helmet. We all kind of know what the front seam means versus the rear seam. We all know what the fixed bail versus the swivel bail, but I kind of wanted to see if there was a way to determine the age of a helmet and apparently a lot of people do because J. Murray Inc. published a PDF today to a article on the military collector and historian journal of company of military historians volume 70 number three fall of 2018 and this whole PDF it's nine pages it is about what is known as the lift and lot numbers stamped on the inside brim of your M1 helmet now, if you're an M1 aficionado like me, or an M1 fanatic like I am, I suggest you go to J. Murray, Inc., download this PDF, and read all nine pages and decipher it for yourself. It's a lot of reading material, but what I thought I would do is I've gone over this, and I want to distill it down quickly. I'm not going to read it verbatim. I'm just going to hit the finer points, explain the first half of it, because once you understand the first half, if you still have interest, you can go off and find a PDF. I'll link it on our page and you can start digging into the mire of it. So we're just going to cover the very early basics of the whole process of the lot number or the lift and lot number that you find stamped on the inside brim of your M1 helmet if you sand down the paint far enough to find it. Which is kind of what led this gentleman, Mark W. Giles, to write this because um, apparently back in 07, someone came out with some information about 
the lot and lift numbers and how you can use those numbers to determine the manufacturer date of your helmet. And so what's happening inadvertently is a lot of people when they're finding original helmets, they're getting out sandpaper and they're trying to sand down this original paint to locate the lot and lift number under the impression that they can use that to identify the manufacturer date of the helmet. And the whole purpose of this article is trying to dissuade people from doing that because yes, it kind of gives you a glimmer into possibly a rough estimate on when the helmet was manufactured. It is not going to give you an exact date like a VIN number on your car. And so there's a lot of information. I'm going to try to distill it down to its simplest form and we'll go from there. Okay, so now if you had a time machine and you were able to send yourself back to 1940 and you, and you found yourself in the Carnegie, Illinois Steel Foundry, you would see them pouring raw material into an open furnace. Once they melted the raw material down and it cooled and they were able to eject it into a large block measuring 216 by 36 by 4 inches, this block was called a heat. This heat was assigned a six-digit number. At this point, that block was cut into three smaller slabs. Those slabs are referred to as a lift. Each one of those three slabs were given a lift number. Think of it like a block of Velveeta cheese that you gave a phone number to. And then you cut that block of Velveeta cheese into three smaller slabs, giving each one of those slabs its own extension. So now you have a heat number and a lift number. At that point, those three lifts were sent off to the Gary Sheet Mill and then turned into 250 68 by 34 inch sheets, averaging a thickness of 0.044 inches. Okay, so each slab, if it was free of defects, could generate up to 2,000 helmets. Okay, so just to back up, you had a heat with a single number that was divided into three slabs that were given their own individual numbers. Those slabs were then cut into skinnier sheets each one of those slabs could produce up to 2,000 helmets. So now you have a total of 6,000 helmets, but only three different lift numbers between the 6,000. Because every 2,000 is going to have the same heat number and the same lift number, and all 6,000 of them had the same heat number. So just to try to make this make sense, once again, you have your block of steel that's given a heat number. That block is cut into three slabs. Each slab is given a lift number because each slab is called a lift. It's lifted out of the block, therefore it's a lift. Each one of those lifts are then cut into 250 sheets that, if they are all defect-free, can produce up to 2,000 helmets. So now you have 2,000 helmets with the same heat number and the same lift number, and then you have 6,000 helmets with the same heat number, but only 2,000 of those will have the same lift number. Simple enough? Yes. However, at this point they are not made into helmets by the Gary Sheet Mill. They are simply 16 and a half inch discs with a thickness of 0.044. Those discs are then stacked in a quantity of 400 banded up and put into a crate. Those crates are then warehoused until they can be shipped out to the McCord Radiator Company. Now obviously when these things are put into warehouses they are just basically put aside, put in there, stacked away, and then they take them out as they can, load them on the train. So they constantly have new discs coming in as discs are going out. And so it's quite reasonable to believe that a disc that was produced on this day and week could have possibly sat in a corner of a warehouse for a long time before it was ever turned into a helmet. So even at the early stages, trying to use a heat and lift number to date your helmet 
isn't exactly true science because you don't know how long that material in the disk form sat in the warehouse before it got sent out to the McCord Radiator Company. Now, once the train showed up at the receiving docks of the McCord Radiator Company, as the crates came off, each heat was given a new lot number. For example, the first crate of disk that was cut from a Carnegie heat had the heat number of 255799. It arrived at McCord and it was assigned the lot number of 596. So each heat has a lot number assigned to it, but it doesn't end there. Because yes, you have a heat number, but you have a lift number. Those lift numbers are assigned a letter, simply depending on what load it was taken off of the train. So once again, let's go back to the first crate that came that had the heat number of 255799. McCord gave it the lot number of 596. Now on this train, there was a lift number of 50697. Lift number 50697 that came from heat number 255799. On this day, lift number 50697 happened to be the third crate taken off of the train, and so it was given the letter of C. And this was referred to as the lot and lift number from McCord. So first you had a heat and lift number, the heat number kind of goes away, and now you have a lot and lift number. But once again, you can't use the lot and lift number to exactly tell the manufacturer date because the letter is assigned by the crate as it came off the train. Since it's the third crate that came off the train, they gave it the letter C because C is the third letter in the alphabet. Now, what you may assume is, well, if lot 50697 came off, the next lot was probably 50698. Well, you're assuming the train was loaded in sequential order. But once again, back at the manufacturer, the warehouse was just loaded up and stuffed as they could fit. So it's quite possible that lift number 51435 was the next to come off the train, at which point it would get the lot number of 596D. And so you really have no way of using the lot and lift number to determine the manufacture date of your helmet because the lot and lift number was simply used as a quality control device by the manufacturer so that during quality control if they noticed a helmet with the lot and lift number of 596C had some defects they could then go to the shelf pull all the helmets with the lot and lift number of 596C and see if there are similar defects and if there are they could just trash the whole lot and so to put a fine point on it a lot and lift number tells you really nothing as far as the manufacturer date of that helmet except for that lot number was the number that was available at the McCord Radiator Company when those discs came off of the train and that letter is simply represents which number crate that that material was part of and the letter simply represents the order in which that crate came off of that train on that day. And so, if it was the 10th crate taken off that train that day, it would have the letter J. And so, the only real way to even remotely try to use this lot and lift number to date your helmet, you would actually have to have access to the McCord Radiator Company's receiving department's books to see what actual heat number was assigned what lot number, and then you could figure out, by that point, which crate your disc was in by the letter assigned to the lot number, but, as far as we know, there is no book anywhere that says 
on January 3rd, 1941, heat number 25674 was produced and then promptly turned into a helmet. Because once again, that raw material probably sat in a warehouse for quite a bit before it was sent off to the radiator company to be pressed into a helmet. And then that material sat around before it was painted and before it actually was issued to a soldier. And so, if your head hasn't exploded from all these numbers and all this confounded nonsense, and you want more detail, because this story doesn't end there, later on more manufacturers got involved, there's more testing done trying to prevent the age stress, and then more numbers were assigned and more letters. If you still, for some reason, after listening to this 10 minutes, if you want more information, just go to whatsthescuttlebutt.com. That's scuttlebutt with two Ds, not Ts, I know. Or go to d-410.com. I will post a link to this PDF and you can download it and comb over all nine pages yourself and see how horribly I explain this. But trust me, I read over this thing for a few hours. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I try to simplify it the best I can. I hope I did it justice and I hope I haven't confused the hell out of everybody. And so that's going to wrap it up for this episode. I am on my way to uh, finish getting packed up, getting my gear together to head up to Lakeland, Georgia. And we will do some interviews up there. And the next episode will be from Lakeland, Georgia. And so thanks, everybody, for your continued support. And we'll see you next week.